0: Well, g'day folks, and welcome to another Equip podcast. This week we'll be going through the Nicene Creed, just as we tried to do on Sunday, but probably as predicted, we could only make it about halfway in the hour that we had together. It's a pretty uh, pretty big task to try and get through this in some detail in the limited time we've got. And so as promised, I'm going to give a bit of a summary of where we went in the first half, and then also move on to the second, and I'll give you a bit more detail that we didn't cover in our class together on Sunday. Just as a reminder, the Nicene Creed, which was agreed in 381 at the Constantinople Nicene Council, uh, sort of moves in five parts, the first on God the Father, the second on God the Son, the third on salvation, then the fourth on God the Holy Spirit, and finally the fifth on the Church. And so we'll start now just by summarising again where we went with the first part on God the Father. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. On Sunday, I asked the question of whether you think it's easier or harder to affirm this statement in today's society than when it was written in the 300s. We sort of tossed that around and noted that there were some ways in which it would be easier and some in which it would be harder. Probably some of the the difficult things today. About affirming this statement would be, of course, that we believe in just one God, in a world where either God doesn't exist, as in atheistic materialism, which is pretty monolithic in the West, or in the majority world, where there's belief in many gods, as in Hinduism, or belief in a different God, as in Islam, a belief in in more of a a God as a, a force, as in Buddhism. And so to say we believe in only one God, he's revealed himself as the Father Almighty, is of course a a fairly arrogant-sounding claim, certainly not an inclusive claim. And yet I think it's something that together with the Nicene Creed and the witness of Scripture, we do very much need to stand on. Another difficult thing here is maybe even just to say that he is the Father, as there are a number of people today that point back to Uh, negative father experiences growing up and how this has shaped them for worse. Uh, To talk about God as father, uh, sometimes uh, people mention that it it triggers them in certain ways. Uh, I can't view God as a father. But of course in saying that he is the father almighty is to say that he is the perfect father. He is exactly the kind of father that every earthly father should be but fails to be. One final thing that it might be difficult to affirm today could be that the Father is the maker of heaven and earth. Again, versus just the the form of of materialism or naturalism that talks about um, everything simply being here forever or everything simply being here out of the Big Bang. Of course, we need to ask, where did the Big Bang come from? What came before that? Uh, And there's a whole lot of theories that people come up around that, but none of them are actually provable or, or testable. They sort of go beyond the scientific method. However, Christians claim, and the scriptures claim, that God was before everything. He has existed eternally and then made everything out of nothing, both things visible and things invisible. And so there's some huge claims that can be made here, just in this opening sentence. Of the Nicene Creed. We move on to God the Son. So I believe in God the Father and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made couple of notes here, uh, you might remember the background of Arius, who was claiming that the son of God, Jesus, was actually a created being. This is sort of the thing that, that the original Nicene Council in 325 convened over. Can we actually agree with Arius on this, or do we have to disagree with him? And they decided at the time to disagree, but as we saw a couple of weeks ago, the debates rolled on over some decades, including many exiles for poor Athanasius, who was Arius's main opponent. Um, the claim here in the, the, uh, the Nicene Creed, of course, is that the Son of God was begotten of the Father before all worlds, that he was begotten, not made. He's an uncreated being. He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Hopefully that comes through very clearly. Jesus here is divine. He is of the same substance with the Father, says the Creed. There's no division of divinity between the Father and Son. It's not as though the Father is fully divine and the Son is partly divine. No, he's fully divine. There is this word begotten as well, which comes from the Greek word "monogenes." Uh, for example, in John 3.16, we hear that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Different Bible translations translate this word monogamous in different ways. So in John 3.16, depending on your translation, you might have only begotten son, or you may have one and only son, or you may have only son. And that has to do with the understanding of this word. So monogamous can mean only sort of uh, generated, hence that word genus, like gene generated. Or it can mean only kind, like a, um, a, a, a gene pool, if you want. Well, here's the people who are part of my family and here's the people who aren't. We share the same genes, so we're the same family, the same kind. So this word can be taken one of two ways. It either means that that Jesus is the only generated from the Father, Son of God, or it can mean he's one of a kind from the Father or or of the Father. Those that take it more the latter will translate it without the word begotten. Uh, The word begotten, it's an old word, of course, uh, but it it does capture that sense of being generated from. And uh, probably that's actually quite an important theological piece to keep hold of. Um, Often monogamous in the New Testament does mean only child or only son. Uh, for example, in Luke 9.38, uh, nine thirty eight, uh, there's a, a man who comes up to Jesus and, and says, I beg you, she's my only child. Uh, he uses this word monogenes. Heal her, please, my only child. Uh, so we, we should probably understand Jesus um, being the monogenes, the only begotten, in the same way. This is the only child, the only one generated from the Father. Now, this doesn't mean that he was created at a point in time. He was eternally generated. A bit like that illustration we used from Origin a few weeks ago, where it's like if God is the sun, then, then, um, as in the S-U-N sun, then Jesus is like the, the rays from the sun. He always proceeds from the sun. He always shines forth from the sun. He always shines forth. He's always generated from the Father. There was no time where he was not. Uh, But in some mysterious way, it is right to say that he was generated as the son from the father. A couple of things this means is obviously that he is his own distinct person. He's not God the father, but he's different from him. But also that he's fully God. He shares the same divine essence because he eternally comes forth from God the father. And this is where Arius, of course, differed in saying that he was not God and doesn't uh, share the divine essence. He would say that there was a time at which the rays came forth from the Father for the very first time. Um, But that's obviously not true. So again, some huge claims here about Jesus, that he is God, light of light, very God of very God. Uh, And there was just a question uh, as well, which I thought I'd answer. Uh, What's with this language of very God of very God? It sounds very old fashioned. Uh, I looked it up in the the original Greek and it's just truly God of truly God. So Really, that's all it's saying. He he really is God. Moving on, uh, we look at the work of Jesus together with the work of the Father and the Holy Spirit to bring salvation. So talking about Jesus who, for us men and for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven, and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. Really powerful statement, isn't it? And all just one big sentence, really trying to capture the warp and woof of of what it is that God has done for us in his Son. Now, um, I asked the question on Sunday, what if we removed any part of this? What if we removed, for example, the first statement there that for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven? What if we removed that he came down from heaven? That Jesus somehow saved us simply while staying up in heaven? Well, we pointed out that this would mean he couldn't actually re- uh, represent us as a human. He couldn't represent us as uh, the, the human sacrifice that's required to pay for human sin. So his, the salvation he brings wouldn't actually be valid. It wouldn't be true salvation. It could only ever save someone who's non-human, which, of course, none of us are. We're all human and need a human savior. So it's essential that Jesus came down from heaven. It's essential that he was made incarnate. That is, he was made flesh. Uh, that word incarnate, the, the carn part of it, C-A-R-N-E, often is, is the, the part of that word, is the same word as in, for example, and this is a bit sacrilege, but chili con carne," That is chili with flesh. Uh, incarnate just means made flesh. So it's important, in fact, essential that Jesus was made flesh for us. Important as well and essential that he was born of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit, Uh, Again, attesting his divine and human origin, both through the Holy Spirit and on the human side through Mary, Uh, but also that he was not born of two human parents, that he was actually born of God, therefore not born in the line of Adam, born with original sin, if you want to think of it that way. Uh, We also hear that he was made man, again, fully human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. Uh, Again, crucifixion, uh, important, not only because it was just a means of sacrifice in the day, but because I I think it fulfills Isaiah 53, where he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. Stands to reason that crucifixion fulfills that, that imagery rather perfectly. Um. We also have under Pontius Pilate, might seem like a sideline detail but I think it's the Nicene Creed's way of saying that this occurred in real history. We don't just look back to a concept of a saviour but actually the event of salvation brought by a real saviour in real time and real place. This is something that distinguishes uh, Christianity from a lot of other religions by the way. Uh, We're not just a religion of ideas, a religion of propositions. We're a a belief system that hangs on an event, the event of Christ having come in real history. We also read here that he suffered, that he was buried, proving that he really died. An important statement today in terms of something like Islam, which which claims that Jesus didn't really die. He was sort of spiritually substituted on the cross with the, the betrayer, Judas Iscariot. Really interesting to read up on that if you're not familiar. Um, but this is the claim here is, of course, he did really die. People saw where he was buried. But then he rose again. Important, essential to affirm that Jesus rose again. As Paul says uh, elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 15, if, if Christ is not raised, then our faith is futile. Indeed, if he wasn't raised, then he'd be proven a liar. We've been looking through the Gospel of Matthew recently, and in Matthew 16 and 17, we've Heard how Jesus said he would suffer at the hands of the elders and the chief priests, but that he would rise on the third day. We also see Old Testament witness to this as well. If you want to look up uh, Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, um, just this this statement around a Davidic salvation figure and that that God will not let his Holy One see decay or abandon them to the grave. Really a, a reference there to resurrection. Psalm 22 has a bit of this as well, as does Isaiah 53 in the, the statement at the end where it says that God will prolong his days. Uh, and there are some references as well in, in some of the minor prophets. But um, yeah, there's this Old Testament witness, as well as in the words of Jesus, this witness to the fact that he will rise again. And so he does. And that's ultimately vindicated by his ascension to heaven. Uh, where he now sits at the right hand of the father it's a useful question to ask where is Jesus right now and if you answer well he's here in my heart well that might be true in in some kind of spiritual sense but it's not true in the literal physical sense physically Jesus has gone to be with the Father he's at the right hand of the father he's left us with the Holy Spirit and what is he doing right now well he's interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. He's actually constantly praying for us, uh, pleading to the Father for us. Uh, Sort of, you could view it in, in one sense as this is his wounds crying out to the Father of us being forgiven sinners. But also it's him in our weakness and in our suffering pleading to the Father on our behalf the holy spirit also joins him in this ministry as we hear in romans 8 that he intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for words and so we have the triune god very much with us in our sin and our suffering so much that we can unpack from from this phrase that jesus sits at the right hand of the father we also hear that he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom shall have no end Again, he shall come again with glory, not secretly, but suddenly and publicly. He'll judge. There is a final destination for every single person who lives in this world. Really, it's Jesus' world. He sits at the right hand of the Father, enthroned over creation, enthroned as the judge of the dead and the living, as Romans 14.9 puts it. And finally, his kingdom shall have no end. We're brought into an eternal salvation under an eternally reigning saviour. To be brought into anything less would make his salvation uh, something less than full. But the fact that he promises us an eternal inheritance makes him the perfect saviour. And I think it's at this point that we pause and we go, why would we look to anyone else? Together with the disciples in John 6, we might say, to whom else will we go you have the words of eternal life. We believe and we know you're the Holy One of God. And that's really the, uh, the statement here in the Nicene Creed. Uh, just briefly, is it necessary really to believe in the virgin birth? Well, I would say certainly yes. Um, Isaiah 7.14 certainly points forward to this as a, a type of what uh, Jesus will, will become. He'll become born of a virgin. And it's certainly possible since God is sovereign. Um, but just to sort of trace out some of the uh, implications of this, just briefly, John Frame, who's a theologian, a Presbyterian theologian, has this to say about uh, the virgin birth. He says that it's doctrinally important, that is, theologically important, for five reasons. First, because of the doctrine of Scripture. If Scripture errs here, then why should we trust its claim about other supernatural events, such as the resurrection? So if scripture is wrong about Jesus, it clearly claims that Jesus was born of a virgin. If it's wrong, then we can't trust anything. Secondly, because of the deity of Christ. While we cannot say dogmatically that God could enter the world only through a virgin birth, surely the incarnation is a supernatural event if it is anything. To eliminate the supernatural from this event is inevitably to compromise the divine dimension of it. Thirdly, the humanity of Christ. This was the important thing to Ignatius and the second century church fathers who we've learnt about. Jesus was really born. He really became one of us. He was incarnate. Uh, Fourthly, the sinlessness of Christ, as we pointed out. um, He can't just have two human parents. He needs divine parentage. And then fifthly, the nature of grace. The birth of Christ in which the initiative and power of all of God is an appropriate picture of God's saving grace in general, of which it is a part. It teaches us that salvation is by God's act, not our human effort. That last point I think is really good. We don't often think about that with the virgin birth, but we need to reflect on the fact that Mary didn't actually initiate this. It was God who initiated this and God who brought it about. All right, fourth and fifth statement. The fourth is about the Holy Spirit. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. We see some really wonderful things here about the Holy Spirit that are worth us making sure that we state both individually and publicly. Uh, we, We don't want to become the kind of people that are Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures, where... Uh, the role of the Spirit is just reg, uh, sort of relegated to synonymous with the Bible. Uh, there is a a role that the, the Spirit has, of course. He spoke by the prophets, we read at the end of this. He inspired the writing of Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament. But he also does more. He is the Lord and giver of life, both physically, as we read in Genesis 1, where he's hovering over the surface and the deep, and in Genesis 1.26, where Let us make man in our image. Uh, The Spirit is active in that sense. Uh, But he's also a giver of life spiritually. In John chapter 3, we we read that we have to be born from above, born of water and the Spirit. In Ezekiel 36, we, we also read that God promises to put his Spirit in us and give us new life. And that's capital S, Spirit, the Holy Spirit. So, the Spirit doesn't simply inspire Scripture. He actually brings new life, both physically and spiritually. In fact, we can't understand Scripture unless the Spirit regenerates our hearts and minds so that we can see the truth of it. What this leads to is that He, together with the Father and Son, is worshipped and glorified. It is right to worship the Holy Spirit. Now, in terms of the the triune dance, if you want, the the dance of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit who are all God but have distinct roles in how they bring the plans of God to fruition, uh, often the Spirit is pointing to the Son. So it's not often in the Scriptures that you see the Spirit prayed to or worshipped. There are a couple of times. Uh, The... uh, The disciples in the book of Acts at one point cry out to the Holy Spirit to intercede and to act. Uh, But uh, most of the time, prayer is to the Father through the Son. And so, you know, we don't need to be people who are always praying to the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit or uh, explicitly saying that we're worshipping the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. But we do need to recognize that the Spirit is equally worthy of worship, worthy of glory, because He's fully God. Just as a side note here, we covered on Sunday how um, the Father, Son, and the Spirit all do have distinct roles in bringing the plan of of God to bear on the earth. Uh, We call this the economic trinity, if you want to look it up, the economic trinity. This is how, in general, the Father plans and commands, the Son, in general, Uh, obeys the father and carries out his plans and the spirit in general brings those plans to creation or to fruition or or to confirmation. If you want to think about it a bit like uh, the the interaction between the brains and human movement, uh, the brain forms the plan and and sends the um, command, if you want, from the brain to the muscles to move. That command is carried through the um, synapses according to neurological impulses, and then the, the hand itself actually moves. It's, that's when the, the movement is complete. It's when the hand actually, or the leg moves, or whatever. A bit like the father is like the brain, the, the son is like the, the synapses, and the spirit is like the actual movement. An imperfect analogy, of course, but maybe a starting point for thinking about these things. Finally, we have this statement that, I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. There's four words here about the church. I believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. Next term in Equip, we're going to dig into these four words a whole lot more as we think about what the church is and where the church is and who the church is. Now, that'll be our topic next, next term. Uh, But just to sort of quickly define and and assess the importance of these words, to say that we are one church is to say that though we have local expressions of Jesus' body, we are united together by our shared faith in Jesus Christ. Ultimately, we are undivided in him. So as much as we want to say and, and do say that the church is any local gathering of Christians who come together and hear the word preached and uh, devote themselves to the gospel and rightly practice the sacraments of baptism and communion and rightly have church discipline in their life and and all that sort of stuff. As much as we say that, the church, capital C if you want, is is the united body of Christ. Uh, And that's spiritually true, but also ought to have some kind of physical truth to it as well. And this is where we could ask the question, to what extent are we showing our unity? Expressing our unity with Jesus' church. Um, We obviously don't need to gather together every Sunday, but but how is it that we could visibly show that we are together with, for example, other good gospel-teaching, Bible-believing churches on the Central Coast? Good question to ponder. So we're one church. We're a holy church. Remember, the word holy just means set apart. So as a holy church, we are set apart by Christ and in Christ, to be like Christ in the world. Think about in the Old Testament how the nation of Israel was supposed to be God's holy people. That is, they were supposed to be set apart, to be like him, and then witness to the watching world of what God's character is like. We're meant to be the same. We're meant to be an outpost of the kingdom, as it were, in a a sinful and dark world. So for us to be a holy church, we need to actually be living holy, both in our individual lives, our lives of piety, if you want, and our corporate lives, our life together, our life gathered. We're a Catholic church, not in the sense of being Roman Catholic, but it's a lowercase c. We're universal is what that means. Uh, That means that, that the church is actually all of Christ's people across time and place. So when we talk about the universal church, we are united with Athanasius from the 3rd uh, the, the century and the 4th century. We are united together with uh, Augustine, who we're going to meet in a couple of weeks' time. We're united together with the earliest Christians who stood courageously and gave their lives without bowing to the Roman demand to worship a false god. We're united together with those Christians as one church. And finally... We're an apostolic church. Not in the sense that we have apostles today. Uh, There are no more apostles in Christ's body today. That's not a gift that carries on. But we are grown out of the witness and the ministry of the apostles. We could talk about how there's the apostolic witness in the New Testament to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, which gives birth to the gospel. Uh, We are a church of that gospel that hinges on that apostolic witness. Now, um, what we'll look at next term is how these four words were hijacked over history by what we would call now the Roman Catholic Church. They came to mean something quite different to what uh, we might mean today. And so what we'll look at is, is how the Roman Catholic Church co-opted these words and how the Protestant Church sought to recover them, somewhat imperfectly, but, but very helpfully. I think they're very helpful words for us to use today. Um, and and certainly in the Nicene Creed to confess. We also have, I acknowledge, one baptism for the remission or forgiveness of sins. We're only baptized once, and we'll be celebrating that this Sunday with Caleb and Jeff and Kerri-Ann, so really looking forward to that. Um, And also, just finishes with looking forward by saying, I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Again, our faith is futile unless it has a forward direction that results in eternal resurrection and inheritance. But we do have this to look forward to. Now, pardon me. As a sort of final note, I'd like you to think about whether the Nicene Creed is still useful for us today. And uh, if it is, how might we read or use it even more? Probably doesn't mean that we have to recite it every Sunday as is done in in many Anglican churches today. I was discussing this with a a few classmates actually yesterday uh, at, at Bible college. And some of them were just talking about how, you know, they have an Anglican background and didn't connect very well with the creed when they were younger, but now that they've become older, they really value what it instilled in them. Uh, We probably don't need to recite it every single Sunday, but I wonder if we affirm the statements of this creed wholeheartedly, and we see ourselves as together with the men who contributed to it back in the fourth century, then um, what could we do with this creed? Useful question to ponder. Until then, um, I'll see you guys in two weeks where we'll get into the giant of church history that is Augustine. Look forward to seeing you then.